Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And so we're in the middle of a series on suffering. So today I don't want to interrupt that series. I want us to continue on in this particular series. And today I want to talk to you again about suffering. When life doesn't make sense. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, I pray for each one who is here and each one who is watching online. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we go through suffering in our lives, that we would grow in our trust in Jesus, that we would grow in our rest, that indeed you are the God who knows the future, that there is nothing in our circumstances that takes you by surprise. And that you will use all things for your glory and for our good. And so, Lord, I pray that even the sufferings that we endure in this life would produce hope in our souls, transformation of our character. And, Lord, that you would, even in the crucible of suffering, use these things to make us more like Christ. Lord, we ask you to speak to us as we open your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Fanny Crosby knew what it was to suffer. She could relate to the man that we talked about last week, the man who was, who was born blind in John chapter 9, because she was blind as well. She was blinded by an incompetent doctor when she was just a few weeks old, about six weeks of age in her entire life. She was blind, and yet that did not hinder her, because Mrs. Crosby, Fanny Crosby, over the course of her lifetime, actually wrote, penned over 8,000 hymns. 8,000 hymns. That's pretty stunning. 
Hymns that you know well, hymns such as Blessed Assurance, or the hymn Redeemed, or Near the Cross, or He Hideth My Soul. Now, how did she deal with her suffering? How how did she deal with the trials in her life? Did she blame God? Did she become bitter? No. But she actually thanked God for her suffering, what he would accomplish through her suffering. In one place in her diaries, she actually wrote that she thanked God. She delighted in the reality that the first face that she would ever see would be Jesus's face as she opened her eyes in heaven for the very first time. Concerning her blindness, Fanny said the following. She said, it seemed intended by God, by the blessed providence, that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. If perfectly healthy sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I verily believe it was his intention that I should live my days in physical darkness so as to be better prepared to sing his praises and to incite others to do so. Wow, what an unusual, what a refreshing perspective on suffering. And how different it is so often today when when we seek to be immediately rescued from our affliction, when we seek to immediately be rescued from our suffering, rather than trust in God that at the right time, in His plan, in His design, in His perfection, He will deliver at the right moment. We're continuing our series today on suffering when life doesn't make sense. Last week we talked about how sin in general causes suffering in general in this world. We know that the reason there is suffering in the world is because of the sinfulness of humanity. If there was no sin, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned and every person who has lived except for one hadn't sinned since the dawn of time, then there would be no suffering in this world. But we know that there is suffering because of sin in this world. And suffering shows us just how serious sin is. Suffering is a constant reminder. It's, as C.S. Lewis said, it is God's megaphone to us that reminds us the seriousness of the rebellion against the high king of the universe. But we do get into trouble, as we talked about last week, we get into trouble when we say, when we try to equate specific sufferings to specific sins in our lives. When we say, the reason why I am enduring this particular suffering is this particular sin, or perhaps even diagnosing it in somebody else. When we say, the reason this person that I know is going through this particular suffering is because this particular sin. We've seen twice in the Bible where they have made this mistake. They've tried to equate specific sufferings with specific sins. Last week, we looked at the man born blind in John chapter 9, where they asked, Who sinned, this man or his parents? We also know that Job's friends made a similar error in that they said, basically in their arguments, if you do good, then you'll experience God's blessings. 
If you do evil, then you will not experience God's blessings. You will experience God's judgment in your life. Therefore, if you are experiencing judgment, therefore, or suffering, then you must have sin in your life. That was the conclusion of Job's friends. But we know they were miserable comforters. God confronts them in their error and says, No, you do not understand the mysteries of God or the plan of God or the sovereignty of God that in Indeed, sometimes suffering is a mystery. And we endure suffering, and we know that somehow, we don't always know how, but somehow, even in our suffering, even in our affliction, that it will bring glory to God, and it will bring good for us, even if we can't see it at the moment. If we think about it, it is really the Christian, compared to other ideologies that are out there today, it is really the Christian faith that deals best with the problems of pain and suffering in this world. Let's think about some of the other options that are out there. Think about the atheist perspective. How does the atheist respond to evil and suffering in the world by claiming that there is no God? They say there is no God or he would have prevented all of the evil, all of the suffering in the world. So they use the evil and the suffering in the world as evidence that there can't be an all-powerful good God. Otherwise, he would not have created a world like this. But by saying this, what they are implying is that they even in the first place understand what good is. How do you know what good is? What is your definition of good itself? And so how do you know that? Well, the atheist would respond, well, it's an evolutionary construct. It's an evolutionary construct. It's made up by society, by the products of evolution, by the time society has evolved to this point. We have societally decided what good and evil is. It happens by random chance. Or what they say now in today's world is they say, we've evolved to the point where not only is it societally constructed, but in even more than that, good is individually constructed to where I decide what is good for me, what is best for me at this particular moment. Now we see this in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, three times in Romans 1, we are told God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. The first time we see God giving them over in Scripture is God gave them over to a heterosexual revolution. Look it up in Romans chapter 1, three times. The first time God gives them over, there is a heterosexual revolution. We've seen that in the United States. We've seen that in the West. The second time, the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, God gave them over, it's the wrath of abandonment, God gives them over to a homosexual revolution. We've seen that in the West as well. We're seeing that. The third time it says God gave them over, you see total, total societal anarchy. And the third, God gave them over. The third step in the wrath of abandonment. What's coming to society that has rejected God has bought that there is no such thing as good and evil, that it's individually constructed, it's societally constructed. What's coming in a society like that is total individual definition of good and evil to where Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And it will be utter chaos. So you can see 
Does morality, truth, goodness, and beauty exist because it's random or because it finds its definition in the character of God? I find the atheist answer to evil and suffering to be unsatisfying. The second option to evil and suffering, another route that sometimes people take, is to explain evil and suffering in the world by denying that either God is not all-powerful or that he does not know the future. You can find this in open theology, open theologians. People like Greg Boyd would be someone who holds this theology. They say, God is good, but he is not omnipresent, or he is not omniscient. He does not know everything, or he is not all-powerful. They say, God does not know the future. He's just doing the best that he can. (laughs) Now, that's what another theologian, not only Greg Boyd, Christian theologian, but a a rabbi, a particular rabbi, uh, Rabbi Kushner, believes this, and he argues this in Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. So in that particular book, he says, God is learning right along with us. And they think they are helping God out by letting him off of the hook, by creating a God that really, in the end, is totally incapable of helping any of us. And again, that is unsatisfy- an unsatisfying answer as well. That we kind of let God off the hook by, ah, he doesn't really know the future. No, I find great comfort in knowing be- that he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Now, there's another view. Another standpoint on the problem of evil is saying that God is not all loving. That perhaps God is all powerful. But God is not all loving. There are world religions that hold this particular perspective. These people are, other people who hold this perspective are often angry with God, saying that he has done something wrong to me. This is often called God needs us, the God needs a psychologist view that says somehow God's messed up and just, we just got to deal with it. You look at the Roman system of God, some of the ancient system of gods, and this would be the kind of, of theology, the kind of system that they had developed, that they worshipped. Now, none of these are the God of the Bible. The Christian perspective on evil and suffering is that God is all good. God is all powerful. God is all loving, and God is omniscient. And God has reasons for allowing evil and suffering in the world. But since God is greater, God is higher, God is bigger than we are, we don't always have access to the immediate reasons for why God has allowed evil and suffering in this world. But we trust in his power, we trust in his goodness, we trust in his character because of his word, because of his faithfulness to us, even as we heard in the song that we heard earlier this morning, he is faithful and true because of his character, his faithfulness, who he is and his power. We trust in him that he is going to work all of these things, all things together, even evil things. He will work all of these things together for his glory and for our good. Now, this understanding of evil and suffering does no damage or does not call God the author of evil or the worker of iniquity in any way. But in that understanding, God will use that and will work through that for his glory, for our good. Example A of this view is at the very center of our faith. Look at the cross. 
When you look at the cross of Jesus, that is where you will find the answer to evil and suffering and affliction in this world. That God took some of the greatest sin. God took the greatest evil. God took the most horrific rebellion ever. And he turned it around for his glory and for our good in using that time of suffering of the Savior for the redemption of our souls. So today we're going to talk about another purpose of suffering here from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and that God sometimes allows us to endure suffering, allows us to endure, endure affliction for the sake of growing us in holiness. So number one, number one in our outline today is this. We become right with God through faith in the Savior who suffered. We become right with God through faith in the Savior who suffered. We must never forget that we serve a suffering and follow a suffering Savior. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 begins with the word therefore. Now whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, if you, especially if you're breaking in the middle of a text, you need to ask, what is that therefore, therefore? See it as a stop sign in Scripture. And remember, the reason why he's saying this is because of everything that he said before it in the letter. So what has Paul said before this in the letter? I'm not going to read all of that, but let me summarize what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse uh, through 4. In chapter 1, Paul begins with a resounding desire to share with us the gospel. He says, it is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And he impacts what the gospel is and why we need salvation in the first place. And then in the rest of chapter 1, as we heard earlier today, the rest of Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed against mankind because of their sinfulness. There is this downward spiral of human rebellion against God. God hands them over, God hands them over, God hands them over. It is the wrath of abandonment where rather than us telling God, thy will be done, God says, all right, thy will be done. And we end up with total societal anarchy. Now, just in case we didn't get it from the bad news and the depressing news in Romans chapter 1, in Romans chapter 2, Paul turns to the Gentiles and he says, look, you have rebelled against God and deserve his judgment. And then just as the Jews were cheering and saying, yeah, that's right, go get them, Paul. Paul says, and Jews, you too. <laughs> Y'all too are no better because you have the law and you dishonor God by breaking the law. Then in Romans chapter 3, he brings us all together and bring down the hammer. And he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. But in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, we have one of the most beautiful passages in the entire Bible where he says, we are all sinners fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. And then in Romans chapter 4, he tells us, how do you receive this gift? So we have, everybody's a sinner. We have, we're all, the whole world in rebellion against God. We deserve death. God has provided a way. He has provided life. How do you receive this gift of eternal life? Romans chapter 4 tells us. Romans chapter 4, how do you receive this gift? The Old Testament tells us that Abraham was justified by faith. And so the way to be saved, the way to have eternal life, the way to have your sins forgiven is to have faith in God. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That brings us to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access by or through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, so oftentimes, Christian preaching and Christian theology and what we've done in churches and hasn't served our people well is we stop there. And we say, that's the gospel. That's it. That's the Christian life. Trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. And it's all great. (laughs) It'll all be wonderful. But we forget to read verse 3. Verse 3 Romans chapter 5 says this, and not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. We rejoice in our sufferings. Same breath, same line, same structure in the argument here, same place. He's saying there, The Christian not only has a new perspective on eternity, but you have a new perspective on this life. You are not exempted from sufferings in this world, but it gives you a new perspective on the sufferings in this world because it gives, it fills the suffering that you endure as a Christian with meaning because God is going to redeem it all for his good purposes and for uh, his glory and for our good. Christian can rejoice in their sufferings. They count it a blessing to suffer because they are living life in the context of the gospel. They understand Jesus suffered to purchase us and to bring us eternal life. And when we follow him, we follow a suffering savior. The difference now is he fills our afflictions with meaning because we know that he is refining us to make us more like Christ. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. That's the gospel. Leaving you a pattern, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. We follow the footsteps of a suffering Savior. And we know, while our suffering doesn't redeem us in any way, we are saved not through our own suffering. But God uses suffering as part of our sanctification process to make us holy, to refine us, to be more like Jesus, to be more like Christ. That brings us to point number two. Point number two is this. Believers will experience suffering, and that suffering is designed to make us holy. The reason why, one of the reasons, not the only reason Scripture gives, but one of the reasons, we'll talk about more in the coming weeks, But one of the reasons why we suffer as believers is we suffer so that God will refine our souls, refine our characters, as the Old Testament says, in the furnace of affliction. How does God do this? And in verses 1 through 5, really in verses 3 through 5, God gives us three aspects of this suffering designed to make us holy first aspect is this. You will grow in holy endurance. As we suffer, one of the purposes of suffering is to grow our endurance, our patience as believers. Look at verse 3. He says in verse 3, not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. 
Affliction produces endurance. They tell me that if you're going to grow your tomatoes inside from seeds, if you're going to grow a garden, you're going to begin those seedlings by a seed inside your house, that before you go in the, before you go and plant them in the garden, you need to do something first. What did, we, what did they call that process? They call it hardening. They call it enduring a little bit of affliction. Before they are put into the garden, you, in, you help them to endure some affliction there so that they are prepared to be out in the elements. We see that here in this passage that God is working in us to produce this fruit of the Spirit, this patience. I love what it says in the King James. It translates this as long-suffering. We are taught patient endurance as we trust God and His timing and His perspective alone. Paul doesn't say this is universally true. For many, tribulations unleash hatred and bitterness and anger and resentment and murmuring. We've seen this played out the last couple of years. We've seen this played out in the last couple of years. Even as many who claim Christ, many who claim to be Christians, have walked through the time of suffering, have walked through the furnace of affliction, and rather than producing long-suffering, rather than producing patient endurance in their lives, what they what we see produced out of their lives is murmuring, anger, resentment, hatred, bitterness. Brothers and sisters, that is not to be so. When we endure suffering in our lives, the purpose of that, one of the purposes of God in our lives in that is to grow us in our patient trust in Him. Our endurance grows in those times of suffering. Listen, when you go through times of suffering, you will either grow bitter or you will grow better as your faith is tested. It will often go one of those ways. Mark chapter 14, Jesus gives an illustration of this in verses 16 and 17. He says, these are the ones who are sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a little while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so rather than that, rather than that pathway, one of the purposes of God in suffering in our lives, allowing suffering in our lives, is to grow our endurance, to grow our patience as we wait and as we trust in him for deliverance. Letter B, one of the other things that God does in our lives when we endure suffering is he grows our holy character. He grows us in holy character. Suffering builds your character. The word character here in Romans chapter 5 literally means the experience of being tested and approved. This isn't hard to figure out how that works. If you endure affliction, your faith has been tested, your faith has been refined, your faith has been proved. The tree of trust was bent, but it didn't break. Your fidelity and loyalty were put to the test, and they passed. Isaiah 48, verse 10 says it like this. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Suffering builds our character. One of the things that I think suffering builds in our souls is a thankful heart. I think one of the things that suffering can build in our souls is a heart of thanksgiving. There's an illustration of this in the life of Corey Ten Boom. I've been reading more of Ten Boom lately. 
and I've enjoyed walking through some more of her materials, more of her writings. I commend her writings to you. If you haven't read Corrie Ten Boom's writings, as she suffered in the concentration camps of World War II, I encourage you to read through that. But one particular instance in her life, Corrie's sister, uh, Corey's sister Betsy, said this, give thanks in light of all circumstances. I read that from First uh, Thessalonians 5.8. And she insisted that her and Corey should give thanks for all circumstances, even for the fleas and lice in the barracks in their concentration camp. That sounds insane. That's crazy. I'm like, sitting right there on the front row in that bag, there's a bag. And you know what's in that bag? It's clothes. Why are my clothes in the bag? It's because Todd, uh, thankfully, uh, offered to treat them for me this week so that when I go hiking this summer, I don't get fleas and ticks. Amen? <laughs> you soak them in this substance and you keep them off of you. I'm not thankful for them. <laughs> I want them to stay away from me. But here they are in the middle of their concentration barrack, thanking God. Yes, we thank you even for them. God opened their eyes. And they realized that one of the reasons why they were able to open their Bible freely, even in the midst of their barrack, is because not one single guard wanted to come into that flea-infested place. <laughs> and so in the middle of that, God gave them hope to endure that they were able to have the word, teach the word to others, lead other people to Christ, even in the midst of their suffering. Now did they pray, God, I hope the fleas last forever. <laughs> No, they didn't. See, that's the difference. See, we don't pray and thank God that the suffering will last forever. We pray and we thank God, God, you will deliver us in the proper time. And I may not know all the reasons, but you will use this even for your glory and for my good. Suffering builds our character as it weans us off trust in ourselves and trust in the stuff of the world that can never deliver. Promise makes lots of promises, but never delivers. And it leans us to trust in God. Finally, number three, letter C. You will grow in not only endurance, not only in character, but you will grow in hope. Look again at verse three. He says, we rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. Produces hope. And this hope will not disappoint us. Now, we have a challenge with that word in that we use that word differently than the way Paul was using it. I hope we have chocolate cake for lunch. Amen. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Amen. <laughs> I hope, well, I'll say it. I hope the Mariners make it to the playoffs. <laughs> well, you, yeah, you laugh because one, right? <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> That's a hope. And you know that I really hope the Royals make the playoffs. And both of them have about an equal chance of happening. <laughs> and so, at least evidenced by the season so far. The Mariners are better than the Royals are. I hope it's not windy tomorrow. I hope I get married today. All of these things that we say we, we hope for. But it's, a, it's an expression of our preferences for the future, but the outcome is uncertain. And it may or may not happen. That's not what kind of hope we're talking about here. That's not it. Oh, well, the future's uncertain. It might happen. It might not happen. That's what we, and, and this would be the preferred answer. Uh, that's not Christian hope. What is biblical hope? Biblical hope is not an empty wish. Biblical hope is a spirit-empowered expression of the love of God 
poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, giving confidence that God is true to his promises and that the one that raised Jesus from the dead will give us strength to endure and to stand before him in his glorious kingdom. That is hope that endures. That's the kind of hope that gives you rock-solid confidence to patiently endure with growing character whatever affliction furnace you endure because you see what's on the other end and it is your absolutely certain destiny that you are headed for. You are headed for glory. And the more you think about glory, the more you love this, the less you love this world. The more you think about glory, the more you think about Jesus, the more you delight in him, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. He is fitting us for heaven, even in the furnace of affliction. If God can bring glory and blessing from the broken, bleeding Savior suffering on a cross, then there is no problem, no suffering too difficult for him to overcome and to faithfully keep me and empower my obedience and trust all the way home till I reach that golden shore, till I reach heaven. And some might say, well, pastor, you're going to be so heavenly minded, you'll be of no earthly good." I would argue exactly the opposite. I think those are who are most heavenly minded are those who are of most earthly good because they are keeping in mind the reality that this life is a vapor. This life is a mist. That heaven and eternity goes on forever. So I'm going to invest my thoughts and my time and my everything in prepping and helping others be ready for that day, that day of his appearing. And it changes everything else in our lives as we see all of that in light of his appearing. Let me encourage you. Are you enduring suffering? Are you enduring a season of trial or of affliction? Let me encourage you in the middle of that, that Try, you can trust in the Lord, that the Lord is going to work in you and is working in you, patient endurance. He's working in your character and he's working hope. All of that we give a word, we call it sanctification. He is sanctifying us through and through, fitting us for heaven, fitting us for glory.